0: Masters Cinema Cast, my name is Joachim Fusen. And uh, my name is Tom Jennings. And today we have with this and our guest of ours, James Marsh. Thank you for joining us.
1: Not at all, thank you for having me.
0: You haven't been on when Tom's been doing the show, have you?
1: No, this is our first conversation together. It's a very yes. special moment.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. But we're doing this uh, episode on Island of Lost Souls in our... Like October Halloween month with Nosferatu coming later in the month but I'm wondering what is your relationship to the horror as a genre
1: well what is my relationship to horror as a genre well I'm unlike many people in a similar situation to me I'm not one of these people who really sort of grew up renting every scary looking film from the local video shop that they possibly could I know that a number of people that do what I do seem to have Sort of develop their taste for for cinema through the horror genre in particular but I was a little bit Hmm. um, dare I say sheltered from that growing up it just wasn't something that um, you know, like when I was particularly young my parents weren't all that keen on me watching it and then I went away to boarding school and it just wasn't really what the guys were into, we watched a lot of action movies and war films and comedies instead and not a great deal of horror films so I think it was more being late to the game than anything else I think that uh you know since since going to uni and that I've just tried to catch up as much as possible and I, I still feel like I'm very much behind and that it always will be a game of catch-up for me but it, I mean it's it's just a fascinating genre because it's a bit like sci-fi and as much as it's uh it's so open to allegory and it can be you know as, as much as uh as much as it isn't it's often about something completely different and something that is at once very prescient and very timely, but also rather sort of universal and timeless. And that's kind of what what makes them fun to talk about, I think.
0: What about you, Tom?
2: Um, yeah, I kind of with James on that respect, I, I don't think horror has been a genre that's been kind of like so integral to my film kind of viewing life. But some of the most, I think, memorable film viewing experiences of my life have come through watching horror films. Um, The first one I seem to recall was... When I snuck up late, I, I in, in the Radio Times it had Alien down as being the film of the week, and I think I might have been about eight years old, and it was on at about half twelve in the in the evening, and I actually snuck downstairs to watch it, and I was so scared. By the end of it, I had to phone my pet. We had phones in the living room and one in my in the parents' room, and I had to phone my dad from downstairs to come downstairs and get me and take me back to my my bedroom because <laughs> I was so scared of what I'd seen. <laughs> and similarly, I think when I went to go and watch The Blair Witch Project, I, I remember. I don't know. If, this is, I suppose, going to show my ignorance. I don't know how that film is regarded in the kind of the horror film community. But I was absolutely um, petrified by it, and I remember being sort of like really freaked out by it, and especially the fact that where I lived in Kent at the time, it was extremely, well, i say, woody. I suppose would be the rather poor choice of word to, to describe it. But I mean, I remember that that, that film really scared me. And in in later years, I remember, and I still hold it as the scariest film I have ever seen. But the descent. Which mm. was one of the few films in which I've actually watched, where I, I, I genuinely was debating switching it off. I was so, <laughs> I was having such a reaction to it, and um, again, I don't know how that how well that film is is regarded amongst kind of horror aficionados. But I wasn't one of these who kind of would scowl bargain bins looking for really kind of obscure sort of, you know, Italian driller killer films. But it's a genre I, I do kind of dip into occasionally. In recent years, I sort of find them slightly disappointing. I think it's being kind of like into kind of films so much is I always find with a lot of horror films where they always have a really great first act and then I always feel a little bit let down, especially when it's kind of like a supernatural type of a horror film by the kind Mm. of what what, the reveal at the end, it's always some sort of cursed book or something like that. And (laughs) um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I've kind of, if I was to do kind of a top 100 of my films, I don't think you'd find many horror films in there. Um, I like films like The Wicker Man and and, and things like that, but I'm not, yeah, I I would be lying if I was to call myself an aficionado of of the genre. I think I would, I I kind of leave that to have been. But one thing that does irritate me um, about horror films is how... um, a lot of critics kind of treat them I mean I remember I can't I think it might have been on the film spotting podcast when I used to listen to that they, they actually described it once as as not really being a proper genre and I think there's a little bit kind of film snobby kind of attitude towards it which does irritate me a little bit because you know they're extremely well made you know, they're really well made and as Shame said there, there's always kind of levels of allegory in them which you can dive into and I, I think sometimes Um, just because we kind of have it has the word horror attached to it I don't think they kind of get the the attention that they deserve so uh, yeah Hmm. it's definitely a genre I think which uh, yeah I want to go into it more but it's again I I can't see it ever really being like a massive massive
0: part of my life no I think I second both your opinions I kind of gravitate towards the non-horror elements in horror films. Mm. More like the the drama or the science fiction or the characters in that way. Not not essentially the um, horrific elements. Uh, I seem to when I listen to podcasts like Now Playing or something, they're always talking about kills and how the kills are performed and whatnot. But that doesn't really interest me as much. What I gravitate towards is just the the atmosphere, the, the sort of uh, world that they are creating. In The Descent, I remember feeling really claustrophobic mm. and that is something that didn't come from necessarily how horrific the kills were but just how they set up the world and how they are using how they are using those caves to create this sort of dark and disgusting underworld so horror as a genre for me it um, I really do find that there are quite few that I think are really good kind of like comedies where there are really a lot of mediocre to poor ones Mm. so finding those that are good is really difficult for me yeah
1: i was going to compare comedies to horror films as well because i think um both both of those genres they're they're great to see or they're at their best when seen with an audience i think and you know they're, they're really good for like a group experience but i think both of them really don't stand up so well to repeat viewing as a lot of other genres do. I mean, I, I think a lot of the scares in this work in the same way as a lot of the jokes. I mean, you'll talk to industry people and they'll refer to them as gags anyway. Mm. You know, for the same reason that I think that they work well once and then there's sort of a law of diminishing returns going on there. Um, but it's interesting what Tom said about um, how how so well made so many of them are. But I think one of the reasons why you mentioned that it's not always perceived as such a uh, I, a f- high art form within cinema is that you do get so many low budget horror movies. I think it is one of the yep. most—it's one of the most accessible and easy to make. Yeah, I'm going to have a lot of a lot of people <laughs> coming <laughs> against me for saying that, but you know, com- comparatively, you know, you get, you know, you get a couple of buckets of blood and a few people willing willing to run around screaming, and you can make yourself a horror film. I think it's, you know, it's one of the Uh, genres that does lend itself very well to a low budget and so as a result Mm. uh, particularly you know in the vhs boom and what have you the the marketplace is flooded with um with with just poor you know an an abundance of poor quality films just because they're you know like i said they're easy to make and you don't need to put all that much effort into uh creating a good script as long as it's got like i said lots of blood in it then people it's gonna it's going to tick enough boxes for a certain demographic and so uh, you, hmm. you do get a lot of subpar stuff there as well
2: Well I think one of the things actually it's always been horror's always been a good entry point for filmmakers for the, re- the exact mm-hmm. reasons that you say and I mean I really before they kind of became I mean I, I think I've watched the first two or three but I really I, I, I was so impressed with the first paranormal activity because yeah, I sort of thought you know, here's people who a lot of times when people write films and they're doing screenplays they they write themselves into a position where what they do there's no way they can actually do what they've written on what they're hoping to do with it and something like the paranormal activity for the first one anyway the people that made that I think they catered the scenario for the limitations of what they had and I thought it was a wonderfully Mm. inventive film and it had some you know some really freaky moments in it and I mean, I know this whole thing. I mean, it cost fifty thousand or whatever, how much the budget was. But that that was a, a great example, I thought, of making a really effective film for nothing on a very very simple premise. And you kind of see a lot of film like, like the original Blair Witch Project. You know, I, I still I still think that's a kind of a, a really great independent film, and the rewards are there. You know, if you strike gold with. Um, you know, these micro-budget films, I mean, the profit margin on them are absolutely huge. It's like you say, though, it's when they try and kind of sequelize these things. I think that's when things get a little bit kind of shoddy. I mean, one sort of sub-genre of horror that I always detested was that whole torture porn thing going on. And I I watched Mm. those and I just remember sort of thinking, it wasn't that... I'm pretty much unshockable, really. But when I was watching them, I just—I was acutely aware of the fact that I was wondering, whilst I was kind of watching these types of films, yeah, what am I actually getting out of this experience? And I think that's one of the things that perhaps I think makes people get a bit sniffy about kind of horror films and its various offshoots, because, like I think, like you say, James, when it's done badly, it's it's quite easy to sort
0: of—I
2: don't know—chastise the whole genre, I think, without kind of looking at the bigger picture sometimes.
1: Right. I mean but it's funny you look back at sort of the history of cinema and it was so such a big part yeah. of uh of you know the first couple of decades of cinema both you know in Germany and in Hollywood. And uh so I think you know any student of cinema will be quick to uh to to come to the defense of horror when done right, I think.
0: This this film came in an age where there was a lot of creature horror running around. Where creatures they usually resembled men, but are in some way deformed. Uh, many of the Universal films that were in that um, horror box set that came a couple of years ago, with Frankenstein and Dracula and Jekyll and Mr Hyde, as well as Todd Browning's Freaks, they they all came in this age, uh, this uh, year of thirty one, thirty two, around there.
2: Um. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm. Um again i'm I'm a bit late to the party on the kind of the universal horror side of things and i brought that wonderful box set and i kind of blazed through it and it did kind of get me going to a lot of these kind of creature you know pictures and um again i think i was acutely aware of whilst i was watching them the fact that i was sort of thinking should i really be enjoying these a little bit more than hmm. i am and i i kind of wanted to kind of join the discussion about you know going absolutely crazy over them but it's again i think it it, it makes me kind of think about kind of like the hollywood kind of as an industry really and they must you know obviously had a few successes and they were just churning these things out the way that we kind of get loads of superhero films at the moment so i think it's interesting kind of like a time capsule way of looking back at kind of audience trends and like james has said really i mean some of those universal horror films i think are pretty poor actually mm. um some of the ones that i've seen but I, I think kind of a film like island of the lost souls i, I was a little bit kind of I'm not sure where I kind of rank it in terms of the kind of the quality of all those. I mean, perhaps James. I mean, you could kind of expand on that a little bit because I'm sort of guessing you're quite a huge fan of this film. Uh,
1: Yeah, yeah, I do love it, and I I like it for a lot of the the reasons that you're bringing up there. I mean, I I I get what you say when you if you come to those films. Well, I think anybody today coming to those films for the first time is going to struggle to a degree to sort of see what the fuss is all about. I think, I mean, people recognise that these are great characters from sort of literature and it's, you know, that has that kind of heritage and that kind of uh, validation behind it. But, Mm. you know, at the same time, I don't think any of them are scary anymore. Put it that way. I do remember the first time I saw Frankenstein. I saw it. I did see it way too young. Uh, I taped it off TV and then watched it one afternoon and I must have been younger than nine just because of where where I was when I watched it and that really was pretty freaky really kind of disturbed me for a while but um yeah it's one of the one of the fascinations I have with these films particularly the films made in you know what's called the pre-code era which you know is this is this period between 1930 and sort of 1934 when actually when the code was introduced until when it was enforced there was kind of like this panic of oh, okay let's throw everything salacious and <laughs> disgusting and offensive and controversial we can at the screen and just get away with it all well you know before uh before before it got clamped down in about 34 35 and um i think one of the one of the appeals of going back and looking at that now is as a kind of like you said as a time capsule and as a um almost to test yourself to go and mm. watch them and go okay well what was considered risque and salacious uh at the time and i think island of dr More, uh, uh sorry not island of dr Moreau. island of lost souls <laughs> um is a, a brilliant example because it, it did upset so many people for so many reasons uh and you, and it's very easy to watch it today and go what you know i understand that what dr Moreau is doing is bad but why was the film banned you know why was the film cut uh and, you know, it, it kind of has to, you, you kind of have to sort of test yourself a little bit in terms of sort of, you know, film history and just uh, cultural history. And, uh, you know, that's, I think, one of the things I enjoy watching these kind of, kind of pre-code films for. And uh, when you dig under the surface of this one in particular, I think it's got uh, as... But I, I think it addresses... I think it's a, so reactionary to so many of those classic ones that came out at the time. You know, it really is trying quite uh, deliberately to address and one-up uh, Dracula and Freaks and Frankenstein and things like that um, in its sort of use of this idea of sort of... Well, we'll get into them one by one, I'm sure, but particularly this idea of this fear of devolution yeah. where, you know, in, in response to the Darwin publications in, like, the 1850s or whatever, you know, um, H.G. Wells wrote this book and then it was ad- adapted into a film. One of the big themes of it was this idea that, yes, hu- uh, the human race can evolve, but it also, therefore, can devolve. And the, f- the fear of the devolution, and you see that, obviously, in Frankenstein. You see that in Freaks very sort of uh, vividly. And then you see it again here in the, in the Island of Lost Souls and what happens when we do inevitably devolve back to a more uh, primal state.
0: Uh, H.G. Wells, he, he wrote the uh, the book, The Island of Dr. Moreau um, and he was quite outspoken about his dislike for the film. He felt Ooh. that the like deeper philosophical meanings, they were overshadowed by the horror elements in the film but unlike the audience of the past when they were watching this film today, this will have no shock power in today's climate so um, do you feel that That criticism is warranted, in any way.
1: Uh, Wells's criticism, or the criticism, yeah. Um, I must confess, I've never read the book. (laughs) Okay. Um, I, I, from what I understand, uh, yeah, it's quite warranted. It is a a bit of an oversimplification, and um, a number of, you know, yeah, like you said, a number of the philosophical elements of the film. I mean, there's an entire kind of third act to the to the book. That isn't in the film at all. Uh, where after Moreau dies, um, what's the what's the main main character called uh, Parker? Is it? Yeah. Uh, yeah, because he's got a different name in the book. I think it's uh, Hendrix or Prendrix or something like that. Uh, he st- he sticks around for a long time and ends up almost becoming a new kind of Moreau. Uh, Montgomery and Moreau are both killed in in the fire, and well, Moreau's killed by one of the other creatures. And uh Montgomery dies in a fire, and so you 've got um yeah the, that the the parker character just sticks around on the island on his, on his own uh with looking after the um, the animal uh, the, the 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 beast men as they slowly devolve back into more sort of beast like uh forms and uh mm. and also there's no there 's no women in the book you know his, okay. g- neither his fiance nor uh the the pan- definitely not no panther woman that was a, a very specific um, and quite uh, blatant and manipulative, um, <laughs> sort of marketing ploy on the on the on the part of Paramount Pictures, because you know they mm-hmm. ran like a competition uh, in the states uh, to cast that role, and it was it's oh, really? uh, the, the equivalent of sort of Britain's Got Talent or the X Factor <laughs> or something. Now, apparently, they had sixty thousand uh, entrants, uh, so so Christ. young women parading around in uh, regional theatres yeah auditioning for this part and apparently none of the auditions had anything to do with actually sort of line reading or anything like that it was all essentially a sort of beauty contest and then <laughs> um the final four kind of came to hollywood and um i think whoever won you know got a part in the film and was promised a contract with paramount i think they ended up giving all four finalists um contracts with paramount and i can't remember the names of the other three but one one in particular of the runners up then went on to be arguably even more successful than uh, is it Kathleen Burke who who landed the part? But it was yeah, it was a huge, great stunt. And uh, uh, well, you know, did it pay off or didn't it pay off? You know, we can talk about how successful the film was, but certainly, uh, no, nothing like as successful as sort of Frankenstein and and some of the others that it was trying to emulate.
0: No.
2: Yeah, I mean, just kind of picking up on the subject here. You know, Wells not being happy about it. I think it's one of those, it's one of those because very rarely I think are authors really pleased with what goes on when right. their kind of works get. go on screen I mean I I mean even um, Stephen King hates The Shining I mean it's like you know and it's it's one of those I mean if you take a a novel and condense it like this and turn it into another format of course you're going to lose uh you lose something in the translation from the medium so it doesn't really surprise me to be honest that he wasn't happy with it and obviously I think that the people who are making the film they're, they're catering it to well I suppose kind of mimic to be aimed at a very specific audience a wider audience than perhaps the, would have been you know, reading the book so it doesn't surprise me I think it's it, the, the criticisms that you kind of often read in those things I, I think come by the fact that people don't really understand the fact that you can't just verbatim make a book you know Mm. it just simply doesn't work like that with different mediums and often i find with very complex novels make really really poor um screen adaptions Mm. whereas kind of lesser novels which are just simply easier to kind of transfer from um, page to screen are are a lot more effective
0: with this film um how much of it is horror to you, and how much of it is uh, enjoyment of uh, other elements of the film, James?
1: Well, like I said, I mean, you watch you watch a film like this now, and it's not particularly scary. Hmm. Um, you know, you, it's not at all scary. Let's be honest. Uh, but I, you know, I think that's as much to do with the fact that uh, it's been kicking around for 80 years than anything else. And we've seen so many sort of derivatives uh, of that that the you know going back to the source as it were is always going to be slightly um, a bit a bit of a letdown shall I say anticlimactic yeah. that's what I was looking for um, but that said I mean so the the horror the horror elements are obviously still there you know I mean they talk about I mean there's there's, there's implied rape and and cannibalism in there you know obviously there's um, bestiality. Uh, there's, you know, the viv- vivisection and uh, you know the the mistreatment of animals and the create creation of these kind of horrible beast men, you know, and there's his god complex and all of those, are, you know, are pretty horror staples from this this er- age, this era, you know, this whole mad scientist thing that, you know, is in Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde, which was Paramount's big film just before. Hmm. Uh, that that, get, that's, that was the hit that they had that essentially gave them the, the confidence to make Island of Doctor. Uh, I'm going to keep saying it. I've lost those, <laughs> uh, and obviously Frankenstein and things like that. Um, but also, I mean, I enjoy it for the other reasons I enjoy it perhaps more for the kind of adventure jungle vibe that it has. You know, because I'm a big fan of King Kong and a big fan of The Most Dangerous Game. Mm. Uh, the, you know, the two big RKO films um, that came out sort of around the same time. And I feel that this is far more of a companion piece to, particularly The Most Dangerous Game than it is to, let, you know, say Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Uh, yep. So I, I, I think of it first and foremost as one of those, but just a slightly hmm. darker, more twisted version of that. And then, so, yeah, and then second, I'm like, okay, yeah, and then it's got the beast men and it's got the pants of the woman and it's got all the, all the, the horrible other stuff in there as well.
0: Hmm. There are, like, weird and gross ideas... Which are right in line with some of today's movies, but it's far more subdued, like graphically. But you, it is noticeable when they are experimenting on some of the beast men, and there's like no music to soothe you or distract you during those scenes. So the pain is, mm. it's pretty much up in front. So
2: yeah, I mean, I, I, I would, I, I kind of, yeah, yeah it's, it's not so much this film scares me. I found it, I find it incredibly disturbing, mm. um, because you. you I mean, I, well, I remember when I first saw it I kind of caught on to the fact that what was I made the connection between the animals and the people pretty quickly on what it was going but um, when you sort of see them and they're they're kind of, you know, how he's mistreating them and the house of pain that he keeps referring to um, I, I found it deeply uncomfortable actually and it's it's one of those films where, if you kind of look into it a little bit deeper you do like James says, you start finding things like bestiality and this kind of eugenics kind of program going on. Which in the thirties that was that was going on in America as well, and obviously you kind of have the kind of the rise of the Nazi party. And it it it's a very kind of scary, horrible concept, I think. Mm. And when you see it in this, it, I I find it kind of got under my skin in that way. As opposed to sort of, yeah, you know, I, I don't know. Perhaps it, I'd be interested to know if people did actually find it genuinely terrifying, you know, if they were kind of like backing away from the screen. I, I, I don't necessarily believe they might have been, but it, it's one of those where it's kind of dressed up in this kind of B movie kind of crazy adventure film, and then really like, like a good B movie or something that kind of so does, superficially doesn't look to have a lot of depth to it. And I, I think it's kind of a strength of the film; it does have those layers that you can kind of get into and in those small, more weightier concepts.
0: Mm. It does have that climate of just or the the idea of just the manipulation and it's pushing boundaries in science and nature which were kind of up in front with like Nazism mm-hmm. and they're trying to find a superior race and all these things, they were kind of in the zeitgeist of the time, wasn't it?
2: Well I mean look out look at the world we live in now, it's still a very relevant issue, isn't yeah. it? I mean, you know, kind of this this quest that we have for beauty and perfection and I, I think it's more of a matter of time when we start until we start mucking around with DNA inside the womb I mean I think it's 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 a direction that as a species I think we're heading in um for better or for worse I think it'll be a debate for another day but you can sort of see it happening by stealth can't you you know here's an injection into a child that will stop them developing all these horrible diseases. They'll be immune from cancer. Well, why else are you there? Can you give them blue eyes? Yeah. You know, I, I can see that type of thing happening. And the fact that this is going on in the 30s, and we're still talking about it now, you can't help, I think, kind of doff your hat and say, you know, it's a film that still has a very relevant message to the modern age.
1: Hmm. Well, and certainly you look at some of the, you know, the, the brutality of what Moreau is doing. I mean, yeah, like you said, with the Nazis, I mean, a couple of years later, that's what they're crazy surgeons were doing in the camps right to their to their jewish prisoners they were you know trying out all sorts of disgusting experiments with them if you if you believe the stories and uh, and yeah you know today i mean we are not even on a on a dna level um but you know it's been it's been a, a thing for the last sort of 40 50 years that people are more than happy to sort of literally go under the knife and just change the way they look uh, for, for yeah, for vanity's sake, really, and uh, it's, that is only getting worse and getting more acceptable and more popular. Uh, you know, you mm. look at somewhere like South Korea, and I think that it's like one in three women under the age of forty have had plastic surgery. It's crazy.
0: Mm. As well as handling these kind of themes of science versus nature, it's also calling out some sort of compassion for these beast men and. Handling the theme of what's human, what's not human, what is the difference between us humans and these sort of beast men or animals if we all suffer equally. And these creations that we are watching, they are mostly humans, so it perhaps is making it more disturbing for us to watch.
1: Well, I mean, definitely when Wells wrote the book, uh, he wrote it on sort of on behalf of. Uh, Peter, or whatever the 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 organisation was the the you know the the anti anti uh, cruelty to animals organisation, the RSPCA or whatever it was at the time, uh, quite deliberately as a sort of anti vivisectionist sort of piece uh, piece of propaganda. Really, you know, he did it in 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 the guise of uh, you know science fiction or uh what did he call it scientific romance i think his books were called at the time because <laughs> sci-fi wasn't wasn't a thing yet um but uh yeah they So it was very it was very deliberately supposed to evoke the reaction of hey think about the animals you know they're they're god's creatures too kind of thing um hmm. so so yeah i mean i think you that that element of it has to be front and center of any adaptation of this story and uh you know rightly
2: so really and I think it's also uh obviously it's a warning isn't it don't don't mess with nature mm-hmm. you know allow i mean you obviously i mean this is Moreau even says it himself you know he's 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 managed to kind of speed up evolution, and I think one of the kind of the things the film is saying is that you know, let it uh, let it go in its own time. We don't need. You know, there's no calling out in society for this to happen. It's not a good thing if we start kind of playing around with eugenics and kind of creating these monsters. And I mean, there's there's just a few bits in the film that really kind of stick out for me. Is that when he when he kind of walks in, he's he's constantly you know doing his whip at them mm, yeah. and things like that. And it, it, those like moments in it really, I think, affects me because it's like you said it's that kind of it's that wanton cruelty to animals i mean i'm, I'm sure we're all hypocrites the thing i can't abide animal um cruelty yeah i, I eat meat you know and it's, it's always this sort of like harsh thing you have to kind of deal with you know i do like a good steak but mm. at the same time i hate the idea of an animal suffering you know in order to do that but I, I, it's to me this film i i think it, it, yeah you know, like see it's sort of saying about you know we should should be a bit more attentive to the world around us and stop trying to kind of impose our man-made vision on it. And I think it does that very successfully.
0: They are indeed asking not only um, what's the difference between us and these animals, but what does it really mean to be a human or not? Because some of these beastmen, they're indeed more humane than Moreau is. So we're we're actually left kind of wondering what it means to be human, if that is something that is an origin or if that is something to aspire to.
1: Oh, I think that's the great irony of the story, isn't it? That the uh, you know the, the lost soul or the the most lost of the souls on the island is is of course Moreau, and, and he is hmm. he's the you know the, the most primitive and vicious beast out of all of them. And what these beast men have pr- have proven to some degree or another is that they they do possess a sort of an in- innate humanity and an innate sort of um uh willingness to uh to respect each other you know they've formed this sort of community out in the forest seemingly quite uh organically and quite peacefully and it's only really the constant sort of antagonism well they've got to wrestle with the fact that they have become these these creatures but it's the constant antagonism from Montgomery and from Moreau that sort of is what provokes any kind of violence from them. And, and in the same way, as you see, uh, Lot Lotta, the, uh, the Panther woman, you know, she is, is naturally sort of sweet and sympathetic and loving and all of these things. And, uh, Moreau sees this as a fantastic opportunity to, to sort of breed whatever <laughs> you know the, the next step in the evolutionary ladder that he he's going to take full credit for. But um, again, it proves that yeah that people are sort of I think, people and animals are essentially and innately sort of uh, compassionate and hmm. uh, you know and and friendly. And it's only from the provocation of somebody like a character like Moreau that uh, the the violent side comes out.
0: It's also handling. You mentioned Lota, and it's handling this sort of sexuality theme where this um, beast man is coveting Ruth when she arrives, and also Moreau trying to capitalize on Parker's presence when uh, he's trying to get him to mate with Lota. And there's a sense of like abnormality and uh, obscenity when Parky sort of discovers her true origins when he when she sticks. Uh, her hands into his back and sort of these nails come through and i just love the scene after parker discovers lotus origins and Moreau he's in the cell with lotus and she, he's seeing that it, she's crying and he's just he comes off as a right bastard there with no <laughs> regard for her at all
1: yeah he's very very uh sort of self-congratulatory when he yeah. notices her tears and he's like, see, I've done it, you know. She's weeping <laughs> real woman's tears kind of thing. Well, I mean, loads, loads to me, is one of the things I'm, I'm
2: not so keen on about the film because I, she's there basically for men, isn't she? I mean, yes. it's, she's she's the Megan Fox in Transformers. That's her sort of role, you know, it's there mm-hmm. for titillation. And I felt kind of the, the sub-story of her, it did sort of detract a little bit from... A little bit for me because I was sort of thinking I was was acutely aware of her role in the film was to be kind of scantily clad and um, kind of prance around in her bikini. But I mean, it's it's interesting because as well, I think what I like about the kind of what I do like about the aspect of her story as well is it's it's like when you kind of when you kind of piece together what he's trying to do, you sort of go ooh. and it has that sort of like oh no that's it's kind of wrong because you know they go to such lengths to show that you know it's really an animal going on in there and i was sort of thinking like what's he going to do with the kids you know what's what, what is the kind of the the, the master plan yeah. for all this you know what is what what's what's his kind of end game is he quite happy to sort of just sit on this island and kind of prod around a little bit and kind of see what he can do or or is there something a little bit you know more sinister going on because He's a he's a uh, an outcast from society, isn't he? I mean, that go has quite explicitly said. You know, he's been booted out of Britain, really, and uh, you know, he's kind of slinked off to do this. But it's yeah, it's a very um, again, it kind of goes to that thing. This film, I think, disturbs you when you start to think about it a little bit more than what you're actually seeing.
0: It's interesting that Parker he claims he could have forgiven. All that he's seen but once he discovers that <laughs> Lota is a beast yeah. then he cannot forgive Moreau so she's kind of serves as this um catalyst for his future role in the film
1: yeah because he's quite sympathetic up to that point and then when he's like yeah. he's like oh
0: gross you made me kiss a cat you
1: know and he's like <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's fun. but um what I was going to say uh about Lota is I think what's interesting about it and considering the period when it was made is that even if Lota hadn't been a, I mean, cause he sells her as a hundred percent Polynesian. And I think what's interesting mm. is that back in the 1930s, even that was scandalous enough. Had she been yeah. just, just Polynesian rather than sort of a Panther, the fact that he Definitely. was then, you know, supposedly kissing her or, or, or suppose even sleeping with her would have been, you know, pretty scandalous for the time. And there were, there yeah. were a few films uh, you know, what we'd consider some pretty exploitation stuff films at the time introducing these ideas of, you know, in inter um interracial relationships, but it was, you know, it was still a big uh, you know, taboo topic back in like the nineteen thirties. And I think what it does is it it hints at another layer of the story and which is backed up by the way that they dress Moreau up, and that's the whole sort of colonialization. Uh, particularly by the by the British Empire, because <laughs> you think when hmm. when Wells wrote the story, you know it's at the height of the Victorian um, era, you know, and that's when you know the sun never set on the British Empire, kind of thing, and <laughs> we owned half the world. And uh, I th- I thought it was fascinating that he goes, you know, that um the way that they portrayed Moreau as this kind of sort of rampant colonialist who goes to these far-reaching parts of the world and to try and change the natives to be more like him. And I think touching yeah. on what Tom was just saying, uh, there perhaps there is no real end game, and that actually he's you know he's doing it just because he can, you know, and it's it's that great mm-hmm. thing of you know you do it because you can do it without thinking about whether you should, and uh, you know you get all a bit Jurassic Park with this kind of thing, <laughs> yeah. and, the, and the ending is very similar to Jurassic Park as well, but um, <laughs> you know they just leg it, and they're <laughs> they're just, they're like, I'm sure they all died. It'll be fine. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> but um you know so I, I got this real sort of uh co- yeah colonial vibe from it and uh, being someone who lives in a in a former colony it's uh it's it's still very very relevant today to see how that is portrayed particularly somewhere like hong kong where i where i am now um where uh, they're in they're, it's in this real state of flux between you know the the british having left and and uh, it 's been left to kind of its own devices, and now the Chinese are coming using all kinds of different tactics to make it more Chinese again mm. and although when they 're not yet doing anything quite as <laughs> as vicious as what Moreau is doing you know there's there's a definite um, you know master plan is, and that's just cause that and that 's just to make you more like me and I think mm. that 's very much part of what what 's going on in Moreau as well. No,
2: absolutely. I mean, it's a—it's it, such a good point. I mean, it, it actually, when, when I was watching it, I, I didn't actually kind of think about the whole kind of the Empire kind of thing going on. And now you mention it, it's its inescapable, really, this idea. I mean, I think the thing that throws me, he says, oh, she's Polynesian, and it's like she's the most un-Polynesian-looking woman <laughs> on, you know, on, on Earth. But, I mean, just to kind of talk about, Momo a little bit, because I think you have to talk a little bit about the performance of Charles Lawton in this. Yeah. Because mm. that really, I, I think, if it was any less of a performance than it is, I don't think this film works. Mm. I think I would struggle to even, uh, t- to really kind of give it much time at all. But the thing about it, it's like the recent um, Planet of the Apes film, where I sort of got the impression that Gary Alban didn't realize he was in a good film and was trying to do this kind <laughs> of really like hammy kind of bellowing performance when perhaps it didn't really need that. He probably could have just kind of I mean, toning it down a little bit. But I think Charles Orton's kind of taken the kind of the opposite view on it. I think he's sort of, he knows he's in what will be kind of an exploitative sort of genre film. Yet he brings a real kind of pers- um, gravitas, I think, to the performance. Mm. I, I really, I bought his character, totally. And mm. I, I was kind of really, I was so impressed with it. And you know Charles, you know, he's a great actor anyway, but yes, seeing him in this, I, I I was completely sold on his performance and how that drew me into the film.
0: I agree completely. He's traced this sort of gleefully awful and horrid person and he speaks about these beastmen with such disdain that he, he just becomes the star of the show it's it's sort of the, the creepiness that he brings to it uh, he's totally in control while still he, he keeps his rage and his disdain under control and his, his presence throughout the film is just ubiquitous where you, you, you're totally sensing that he's he's lurking around the corners or so he's watching everything that is happening.
1: I think so as well, yeah. It's so sort of underplayed and, uh, you know, there's there's this kind of sort of little camp thing going on as well, but it's, uh, you know, but it's definitely a guy who's been left on his own for too long. Hmm. Uh, but it's very it's very underplayed. I mean, he doesn't really grandstand with it. I mean, it, if you look at recent performances, it's, it's very much in the school of Hannibal Lecter or, Javier Bardem in No Country for Old Men or something like that, you know, where they mm. managed to be completely horrific and terrifying um by doing very very little, just by kind of being there. And um yeah, he's so it's such an odd odd strange performance that he's finding the whole thing kind of um amusing mm. in a way. I mean, right until the end when he, you know, he gets cornered in into the house of pain, but um you know he's always got this it's you you almost think that he's playing this kind of dastardly villain i mean he he's dressed up with a little mustache and everything to look incredibly uh sort of sort of camp incredibly sort of dastardly but he's playing it in a really sort of strange way where he's not doing a great deal but he's just kind of smirking his way through and it just it's it's to the point of I don't think the performance is irritating, but it's almost to the point that the character is not taking the gravitas of the situation uh, seriously enough, hmm. and that he, it's all just a ruse to him, and it's all just you know a dalliance with uh, what his his own sort of personal perversions, and you know there are no uh, repercussions, and there are no um, you know there are, you know not, not what could possibly go wrong almost. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's, I think it also helps the fact that the other main characters, especially the um, the Parker character, he's so straight-jacketed mm. that it's it's hard to kind of read any sort of personality into any of the others so he, he's kind of this relief or he brings a certain depth to the film, at least
2: Yeah, and there's a, well, there's a few little clever um, kind of bits in the screenplay where he gives Parker his gun and I thought mm. that was a nice little moment because it, it in a way you think that by giving him the gun that's like a form of empowerment but it's it's, it's really it's a completely opposite thing he's, he's literally just buying the guy's trust you know he's hmm. buying parker really making parker think he, he has some control over this situation and really he doesn't at all it is all kind of monroe kind of playing with every you know playing with everyone psychologically and you know when you sort of um you see monroe he's always kind of he's always apparently in control, he's always got a key or his whip or something like that, and he's kind of the master of this little world. But because Lawton isn't kind of camping it up and really kind of going down the evil kind of laughing and you know, that that route of acting, it mm. makes it that little bit more spooky for me, and you sort of think, yeah, you, know, you, you want to shout at Park like, stop being so stupid and just get, <laughs> get out of there, you know what I mean? Don't go down the rabbit hole. But, um, yeah, I think that's... it's. It, it's, to me, what saves this film, I think, in a way, because, uh, you know, the, the Richard Arlen, who plays Parker, like you said, Joachim, it's a pretty... I mean, he's the Shia LaBeouf, really, of this film. He just, he just, looks, he just looks a bit—he looks a bit gormless and does things. You're determined the to make this Transformers, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. I'm on, I'm on a mission. No, I mean, he just looks gormless and does stupid things, doesn't he? Which is what you need someone in these films to do. It's—you know—it's the sign saying "Don't go here. You're going to die." And they go, "Oh, I wonder what that means." And yeah. they kind of go down that route, and he can he kind of does that. And it's—I I always I, something about when I watch kind of older films as well. I'm always amazed at just how unconvincing the love story elements are in them. Mm. And mm. it's like when his missus turns up, it just it, it makes me laugh so much that <laughs> they sleep in separate bedrooms. <laughs> yeah, right, right. I mean, you've seen all this absolute horror of beast men running around and all kinds of debauchery. And, and I know, obviously, there was probably a... Um, uh, reasons why the censors the weren't allowing them to do that but honestly would you let your missus sleep alone on an <laughs> island like that you'd be at the door with a gun all night you would just get, and you were like oh yeah let's just have a really civil dinner you know you're thinking stop being so stupid but you know that, that's just the, that's that's the fun of these films and that's the kind of the, yeah. the screenplay they were writing but I mean it's bits like that I just kind of I, I do shake my head out a little bit I have
0: to be honest and the scene where Ruth discovers that Parky's been missing at sea the performance she gives is like oh that's too bad. <laughs> it, <laughs> it, 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 there's no reaction, and she's just sitting there, taking a coffee and waiting. And then she gets a notice that he's um, he was saved by another by Murrow's ship, and then she gives this slight sort of smile, and then just continues with her day. <laughs> so. <laughs>
2: Oh yeah, it's like thank, thank God. He
0: yeah, have, yeah. yeah it's like,
2: he, he might have been killed. Oh, he hasn't. Oh, no. He oh, that's okay. I just have, I'll hop on the next boat there, and you know, everything can sort itself out. And it's, yeah. yeah, I mean, there's that yeah you know, when the captain throws him off over the thing as well, and they have that oh, flight, yeah. and it's like this sort <laughs> of like you know very very brief kind of investigation. We shouldn't have done that. Oh, <laughs> carry on. Yeah. You know, so there's no. It's just sort of like you night know, again. I think that's that's just the screenplay saying that we need to get her to the island so that she can be um possibly attacked by beastmen that's you know, yeah that's the whole point of it but it's those little kind of throwaway moments where i think as, as well and the, the 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 director goes to such lengths to show that he's been washed up it scrolls down the list of names and it even blacks out the rest and highlights his and just in yeah. case you don't quite understand
0: it's yeah. the same person
2: <laughs> and that they've been saved it's like you know ooh, short of putting a caption saying this is the person you saw at the start and this is the woman who's in love apparently in love with you know things but it's um <laughs> yeah it's a it's a very speedy screenplay isn't it i mean it's a very kind of one moment boom next boom you know it doesn't it doesn't languor it doesn't kind of there's not much fat on it is there i think that's what no. i'm trying to say
1: oh not at all i think the whole thing is like what 70 minutes in and out yeah, yeah. all the better for it i think
2: um, well, I, don't, I, I don't know. I, I could have perhaps done. I could done with it perhaps being a little bit longer. Uh, I mean, I have a bit of there. I think you touched on James, but um, set something on an island, and I will like. I will give it points like Shutter Island or something like that. Yeah. You know, I will, I will always enjoy that kind of that aspect of it. And I, I would have perhaps liked a little bit more time on the island. Perhaps it's, it's like you say. You he's he sort of presented with all this, this bad stuff. and He's like, oh okay, never mind. And then, oh, you're doing this to women too. That's awful, you know, and I would like a little bit more time perhaps on the island finding out it, it, it's not quite the kind of, you know, the deception of Monroe. I think we could have done a little bit more kind of, he's very upfront, you know, Is he? he's not one of these kind of hide in the dark baddies. He's just like, yeah, I'm doing this horrible thing and tough. <laughs> yeah, and I think I could have done with a little bit more perhaps discovering he's, or what he was really up to. But then you know, again, I, you sort of think about when, you know, who this film has been made for at a contemporary time, it's not there to, it's there to be in and out in the cinema, isn't it? It's not, you know, you're not meant to be in there for a couple of hours.
0: One thing that I found really striking was the, the visual element because the cinematographer, he's Karl Struss, mm. uh, which is a cinematographer with roots in like German Expressionism. He mm. filmed Myrna Sunrise, among others. So you can definitely sense that these shots have been carefully considered and there's some quite striking lighting going on and camera movements and it, it's all constructed editing to create this sort of shock effect
1: yeah i mean obviously there's a lot of low angle shots there's a lot of use of of big shadows thrown up against the walls and uh you know i quite like the the main set actually where it's all you know big white stone and 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 black bars everywhere i thought it looks
0: it's very very artificial but it's Mm. it's fitting for the film yeah
1: yeah no i think so
2: i mean yeah i mean it's it's one of the problems that I have with a lot of modern films is that they all look the same to me um, the, the default example are the Marvel films they all look visually the same to me and I find them quite boring on that front and mm. even kind of lesser I, I suppose kind of lesser films made on this period when they have kind of Um, Technicians coming in from Europe who have this background, you know, kind of obviously, you know, know, Sunrise, the the first Ben Hur, they just bring that little added extra element to me to keep me interested. And when I'm watching this film, I love the use of shadows and how they kind of reflect on the wall and get bigger and bigger. And the fact that you know sometimes when characters talk, in their faces are completely obscured by shadow. And Mm. it's such a simple effect, isn't it? You know, it isn't anything too technical or incredible. It's just bang shadow and it's like even when they're on the island and you see Parker's girlfriend I mean she's so bright and kind of angelic and it's obviously telling you this girl is as pure as snow before you, you, you can just make that assumption just on based on how, on the filmmaking it's telling you everything you need to know about this character You she's going to this dark horrible place and I like the fact that it's a dark horrible place that is represented mm. in a dark horrible way I think that's it. it's <laughs> always it's, it's, it's not subtle but it's really effective and it's something you can kind of dig into
0: and there's always this sense that there's someone lurking around the corner there's someone watching whether it's Moreau or these beast men there's certainly in the corner, you can always find a character looking at our main characters and also you can you can find these sort of looming figures that are sort of overshadowing, and this sense of sense of claustrophobia and sense of imprisonment with all the cell bars walking around and yeah the the conventions of these 20s horror films from germany are certainly in full effect
1: yeah i was just going to say it gives a kind of sort of sense of inevitability about everything yeah. that's, that's going on you know people are literally just like you say that almost every scene that there, there is somebody lurking in the shadows or in the bushes either about to attack or just waiting to see what happens it's almost like part you know the parker character he is going to screw everything up all by himself almost and everybody you know from the minute he arrives um i think that's why Moreau's so laid back about it all he's just like okay sweet i'm just gonna just let let you just let you do it and you're gonna roam around and inevitably eventually you will uh you will do what i want you to do and uh yeah i think it it adds a certainly adds a kind of creepy like you say claustrophobia to it all and
2: the thing i think about um kind of journal expressions and that is it's just little things that i pick up on like light sources in these films that there must Mm. have been like 10 suns shining because (laughs) in, in, in an office there's so you can see like um when they're in kind of the office of the the naval people, there's like blinds that are kind of going in one angle and another angle and another angle and it's completely unwritten. Now you'd have some smart on the internet like going "Look, look, look at this, you know, they've kind of, there's no this isn't real, but in those days it was more kind of like, well it's there to create a very kind of specific effect, so when you see kind of light shining in and it's totally artificial obviously this is all filmed on set and they're kind of just throwing you know there to do an effect but i like that in the fact that they are they don't have these kind of visual rules to to apply by it. it's, you know, it's there to create a very specific effect and it does it incredibly well
0: i thought it was interesting that moreau he he's the one that brings about his destruction uh, if we're jumping to the end here where he sort of breaks his own law in that he's trying to um, get the beastmen to kill uh, kill Parker and his uh, female friend, and he breaks the obligation that the beastmen feel towards their own laws, um, where they're finally revolting and saying law no more, and then they stab him with his own medical equipment. It, it sort of underlines the fact that he brought this on himself, basically. Mm.
1: I mean, it's very much what you see in all kinds of sort of sci-fi uh, films like this where you know you have a kind of totalitarian state uh, you know run ruled by like one person or like an an elite and inevitably they never uh, live by the same rules by which they govern mm. and um you know uh, the wrongs are righted when the people you know rise up and revolt and, and liberate themselves and so uh, i think it was very much uh, i suppose uh well apparently it was you know it was it was a direct response to uh, the ending of freaks from the previous year which did the same thing but uh actually upset quite a lot of people because you had all these real um uh freaks sorry yeah <laughs> um who were, who were being uh, who were cast in these roles you know because they were so sort of uh special or you know deformed or what have you um hmm. and when they all rose up and uh you know and won the day, as it were, it really kind of upset audiences, and they weren 't ready to really champion those kind of heroes i guess hmm. um, so so it was uh, the, the ending of of Moreau was a sort of a direct response to that, but I think they kind of made an effort to try and make it a little bit more sympathetic and so that you kind of you really are on the side of the beast men when it happens hmm. and obviously you 've got there 's another link to freaks, which is that um uh, Ruth. Uh, Layla Hyams, who plays Ruth, who's uh, the the uh, purer than snow uh, heroine, if you like, is, is the lead actress from Freaks. And she's the one who, but there she plays like a, uh, was it a, a trapeze artist or something. And she's the one who enters into the, the central relationship with the midget. And so she's oh. at the centre of the controversy there. And then, you know, less than a year later, she is uh, the epitome of all that is good and pure which is quite
0: <laughs> yeah,
2: no, quite no, Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's the ultimate Frankenstein story, isn't it? He's created this artificial world, inserted all the rules into it, and then it's those rules which, invent, yeah, in order to break free of his kind of power on them, they have to break those rules. I would say, though, I think the ending when he gets killed is the most horrific moment in the film. Mm. Um, because when you see them taking all those implements mm. off and going over to him, and you sort of see him, they're all kind of crowded around him. Um, yeah, you don't need blood splatters or to see him being cut open to know exactly what's going on and to hear those screams. And uh, I found that particularly disturbing. To be honest with you, I was really um, not kind of like hiding behind the pillow, but I was like, oh god! You know, this film suddenly you know, it is kind of going places, and it's, it's, it's that that it's, it's good filmmaking. You know, in that kind of you, know, you don't need to show what's going on; you just need to hear it, basically. And uh, yeah, I was really. Uh, aghast really at how nasty that was and it was, I wasn't expecting it when I first saw this film, I seem to remember I sort of thought Amy would die in another yeah, I thought Parker was going to kill him in the end but for his own creations to come back and just rip him apart like that and it's just that idea of the house of pain and how he uses that as a threat and you can see their reaction to it they know what goes on in there and to die in that way, yeah it's uh, pretty horrific
0: and you can definitely hear Bella Lugosi in the end yeah, with it. his voice yeah definitely, no <laughs> I was, waiting, I, I,
2: I was um yeah I was looking out for better Lugosi throughout the entire film, but but one thing just to talk about was the kind of the the uh, the creations in general I think the um that's way you have to really give the film props is the makeup is absolutely mm. stunning, I think in this film it 's so effective
1: indeed oh, I think so I mean you don 't really see makeup like that in a lot of these other films I mean the use of hair obviously in particular was uh was yeah it was really kind of weird very unique very uh striking and powerful yeah and it made a really big impact i mean we're talking about bella lugosi quickly i mean obviously that was a bit of uh stunt casting you know to cash in off the back of uh dracula and and the other films he'd been doing at the time but uh hmm. apparently I, I read that i think it was actually i think it's actually in um kim newman's essay that's in the booklet accompanying the masters of cinema release uh i think it's there that apparently he was brought in after lawton had already shot all his scenes and so lawton didn't know anything about it and so he's cut into it all the sequences that lawton had already shot and there's one or two sequences well, there's one or two shots where they appear to be in the same scene but actually in right. all of those scenes you just see lawton from behind and mm. um Newman, Kim Newman didn't go into the details, but he's just said there's a little a bit of uh, editorial trickery going on there, so I don't know whether that's a stand in or whether they have you know composited one shot onto onto the other but um yeah, it's fascinating to know that they were they were not knowingly well w well, or Lawton was not knowing knowingly acting opposite Lugosi during those scenes
0: I think we can move on to the censorship history of the film because. Mm. This was refused certificate three times by the British Board of Film Censors in 33, 51 and 57, and the bans uh, were due to vivisection and animal cruelty, and also I think the Moreau line, do you know what it means to feel like God, it was also objected by the censors. And eventually it was passed in 58 with an X certificate after cuts were made, and now now it's released in PG <laughs> with yeah. these cuts reinstated but um, do any of you know any other details regarding the uh, more details regarding the censorship history of the film
1: I would have to put my hands up and say no on that one I'm afraid okay. yeah not I mean not a great deal more than that I mean obviously it was uh, I mean this is like I was saying this is kind of one of the most interesting aspects of it as far as I am concerned you know it's is coming to a film that was such a big deal at the time and was yeah. so so controversial, and and seeing why and realizing that you know the one line of dialogue in the film that that was a huge issue and was cut out of many uh, of many versions was yeah this this uh, idea do you know what it do you know what it means to feel like God uh, and, and you can understand why it would upset some people uh, but mm-hmm. the fact that so many uh, countries and so many sort of censorship boards took issue with it I think it was banned. In like of a dozen or so countries, when it when mm. it first came out, and I I love the fact that even in 1958, yeah, it got passed with cuts as an X, and then then now, <laughs> now it's what a PG, yeah, yeah, <laughs> uncut. It's, it's it's fascinating.
2: I love that kind of stuff. Well, I mean, you, you think I mean how I mean some films that come out that are 12 certificate now. I think God how can this be a 12 you know i mean is it because I've, I'm, I'm a bit of a wuss or something like that but, i mean it always amazes me that the, the dark knight um that that's a 12 i mean we have mm. you know we have massive issues in this country with knife crime and yet you've got someone who's constantly putting a knife to people's faces and telling them he's going to slice them up and has got horrific scars on his face like that's oh, a 12 you know kids today understand but it's it, yeah again i think from a film history point of view i always find censorship stories quite interesting because it's it's this sort of, I don't know, fear that somehow this is going to corrupt society. Mm. I mean, that, I mean that, that's the reason why they're not in the same bedroom together is because it, that would be just be too much for people. Despite the fact that everyone goes to bed together, <laughs> you know, most couples sleep in the same. Room. But you know, that, that's the reason why it's not there. And mm. it just interests me that you know that's the kind of how fragile perhaps they saw society as being in those days. You know, these little things were going to go push years despite the fact obviously you still have censorship whilst there's a world war going on <laughs> you think about all the things that were going on in the 40s and the 50s, you know, in the 60s you know, well, you know, up until the mid-60s, all this kind of horrific kind of acts of barbarism going on, but God forbid you can't see two people in the same bed, that, <laughs> so that's just going to send us under, you know, it's, it's very interesting to me
0: Do any of you know how the Audience actually reacted to the film. Uh, we know how the censors reacted, but did the audience like run out of the theaters when they saw these beast men, or did they throw up in the aisles? Or?
1: I did read stories about about vomiting. Um, yeah, I think it must have been somewhere on the U.S. release. Um, but yeah, no, apparently, I mean, it didn't. It didn't do very well, as far as I understand. But uh, the audiences that did see it, yeah, it was there was quite a sort of um, a visceral reaction. I think.
2: I all. I'm very skeptical
0: as to those stories. <laughs> yeah. Anyway
2: and I, I always have been i i still don't believe people ran out of the cinema to train arriving at a station
0: I seems can't... like a marketing, marketing ploy or something
2: i think it is yeah I've, I've always been a little bit skeptical when you know people kind of passing out and you know, falling over themselves i was one i did i i did go to a screening once of the passion of the christ with evangelical christians and i did see people running down to the front <laughs> and like convulsing <laughs> on the floor and, and speaking in tongues and Uh, I can genuinely attest that only because I was there can I say that but you know it's one of those where if I was to regale that story and and say people were running down to the front and then clasping their hands and literally trying to pull him off the cross I I don't know why I'm laughing sorry it's really inappropriate but I was there and I witnessed it if someone told me I'd be like come on it never happened you know what I mean but um, yeah I'm a little bit skeptical of these stories and people vomiting I mean really is it that scary? Yeah, you know, is it mm. really going to kind of make you feel that bad? I mean, and you think think about it logically. The last time you puked, it was probably food related, alcohol related. You know, it takes a it takes a lot, I think, to instill that kind of fear into you to the point where you feel physically sick. I mean, mm. I, I definitely during the descent, I felt a bit twitchy, and I was genuinely sweating. I was having a, vis- a visceral reaction to it. But yeah, I'm a little bit on the kind of the side of. I think it's it does it's not it's good for dollars, isn't it? When you say this film's so scary, it will have you puking in the aisles. <laughs> you know, <it's> a, <laughs> it kind of makes you want to go and see it on the you know just to see if it really is that bad. So
1: I'm kind of inclined to sort of say mm, yeah, bit of skepticism on that one. Yeah.
0: Um, anything else you would like to discuss on the film itself?
1: Well, one the one thing that's always confused me about it, and you know, I was I was struggling with it earlier actually, is that. This film, in many ways, was seen as jumping on the bandwagon. You know, yeah. Universal had had a couple of really, really big successes. Paramount had had um, Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde, and they thought, okay, right, let's do another one. Let's get a classic novel. Let's adapt it. Let's bring in, you know, let's make sure it's got a lot of a lot of sex, a lot, a lot of violence, a lot of controversial topics. We'll put Bella Lugosi in there, and then we go and change the title, and for mm. no good reason. I understand that, you know. Island of Lost Souls sounds a little bit more spooky than Island of Doctor Moreau but Island of Doctor Moreau is a really famous book you know yeah. and yeah. everybody know everybody knows it and you know and you're following up all these classic adaptations of all these great similarly themed novels and then you just go and change the title and I haven't I've been looking around and I can't find anywhere any any um anyone who actually sort of knew why they did it but it just seems it wasn't even like um hg wells hadn't given it his blessing i mean he did he didn't like it when it came out but he did give them you know they had permission to do it and even in the credits he gets credited as you know based on a novel by hg wells they don't even say based on the novel island of dr moreau in the credits and Mm. it just seems like a really stupid thing to do uh you know considering what they were setting out to achieve
0: Mm.
2: yeah i I totally agree and i think I mean, Island—I always call it Island of the Lost Souls as well, and not Island of Lost Souls. But I think perhaps that they might have gone with that because they thought it was a bit more exploitative in a way. That kind of sounds a bit more kind of um, what, well, like a bit more horror esque. I don't mm. know the Island of Doctor Moreau. You know, it's you know the, why not the Island of Doctor Smith? You know, <laughs> I mean, it's, there's, there's sort of you know, if you're trying to try to evoke a certain kind of trying to preempt people's opinion of the film and trying to get in that image of them. Island of Lost Souls sounds a bit more dramatic. Perhaps that's the only that like it's the only reason I can think. Perhaps that's what, from a marketing perspective, that was what they thought. But it does seem a bit stupid. I mean, it's like you have got a, a franchise like The Hunger Games. It's a bit like changing it to Death Arena or something yeah, right. like that. <laughs> you know, you, you, you got this kind of like really sort of like you know everything it's a brand that everyone's familiar. With. It's like oh, we will turn it to that because it it will somehow say more about the film right. in a way or something. You know, and I think that's the kind of. Perhaps the angle they were going down I totally don't agree with it, I think you're completely right You would just kind of capture that You'd, you'd put it, I think when you say H.G. Wells is The uh, Island exa- of Doctor Exactly. exactly. You, you'd, you'd, you'd wear it loud and proud I guess it might be a slight segue into. It. Have any of us actually seen um, The remake of this with Marlon Brando? I have not, no, no. I,
1: I do remember seeing it when it came out um, uh, And I haven't seen it since Although there is a new documentary doing the rounds Called Lost Soul which is the you know the richard you know richard stanley was was the first director on it and then he was obviously kicked off and they brought john frankenheimer in and um and then he snuck back on set you know dressed as a a dog boy extra and what (laughs) and uh and it's and it's a great story and i think they just premiered it at fright fest because it's going it's playing at fantastic fest in texas next week where i'm going so i'm it's definitely on my list of uh, films to catch then but uh it, that's that's a incredible story in and of itself, but no, the, the the final film I do not remember being any good at all.
2: Yeah, I, I've watched it once, but I, I, I was reading a um, Mark Ramone book um, mm. quite recently, and he was absolutely savaging Marlon Brando. And again, it's one of those stories that's actually more interesting than the film itself. But apparently, um, Marlon Brando just couldn't be bothered learning his lines, so they actually had um taped to radio, and then they could basically someone was feeding him his lines and then he was saying it but the radio actually did tuned into the local police department so Marlon Brando <laughs> was sat there like giving like updates on car crime and things like this and it's just kind of it's so in keeping with this is a bonkers film to have such a bonkers person playing it and this sort of like craziness but I mean I seem to remember I seem to remember I, I watched it like when I was 16 or something like that mm. and i sort of thought i didn't i didn't know how to articulate how much i hated films so i sort of just passed it off but i'd like to go back to it in light of having seen this to see if it kind of it is actually scary or you know even tries to be a little bit more scary because it's such a good story this that I, it seems that it's kind of begging to have a decent a really good film made i'm not saying this isn't but um you kind of think in this world perhaps you know with all the remakes that we have i'm surprised no one's kind of had a look into doing it
1: mm. Yeah, because there is another version. There's a 70s version with Burt Lancaster in it as well, but I haven't right, seen I've that. I've never seen that. No, I haven't seen that one either.
0: The The Twilight People, uh, Pam Greer plays the Panther Woman in that one, but is that story similar to this one, or?
1: I think, yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, I, I don't know how um, closely it is uh, ad- adapted, yeah. 1973's okay. The Twilight People. Uh, yeah. I don't know.
0: Speaking of the release itself the the picture and sound quality is uh, it's pretty decent considering the age of the film where you have this, you have the grain and you have some you have some pulsating vibrancy in the picture but uh, all in all I find the picture audio quality pretty good
2: It's about, I mean it's always this kind of debate that I have with, with people and I go back to that story of when I bought Sunrise and the guy in HMV went why would you want to Buy this film on Blu-ray, it's not going to look very good. And I sort of remember thinking, look, it, it's this sort of quest for visual perfection that I think people think we're on. And something like this doesn't need to be no. mm. uh, uh, kind of spruced up and changed and degrained and like, make sure that the kind of the you know, every shot is is perfect. I, I think there are some of it where there's some shots in it where it's really, oh, I thought, a little bit out of focus almost, which I can only assume was stuff that was cut. And especially there's one bit where I think kind of um, she's like kind of lay quite seductively out and Monroe's M- M- sort of looked uh standing over and I did notice that looked a bit grainy and a bit you know slightly poor quality, but I don't want them to go in there too much and sort of digitally alter things and bring out the shadows. It just needs to be just 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 improve on what's there. And I think again it's one of those brilliant um things, kind of masters and criterion they, because I think that they're being done by film fans they understand how these types of restorations should be done and mm. that restoration these restorations should be there they should be as faithful as possible to what's there but you shouldn't impose this kind of modern ideal of how something should look perfect onto these types of films that's not what restoration's about and I think it's another one they get it absolutely bang on I have a really bee in my bonnet when they take a mono soundtrack and then turn it into a surround sound one on these mm. types of films it's just so artificial and fake I'm complete steaming hitocrit actually because the wings uh, one's got a surround sounding and that sounds really good and I loved it but uh, for a lot of the times I, 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 it's um, it does happen when they turn like a mono soundtrack into like a 7.1 type of affair and you're like, <laughs> you're, like, you're like why? You know just leave it there you know just do what's there and you don't, you don't have to go in there's nothing wrong with mono audio as long as it's decent and sounds good and it, it surprises me sometimes because I it's I, I think it kind of panders to the kind of People who who think that that that's what they should yeah, a film should sound as opposed to what was originally there.
0: Hmm.
1: Yeah, no, I, I agree. I've got. I mean, I'd, I I'm just going to second everything. I think it's, I think it's a really good release. I think it looks fantastic. You know, yes, it is. It is a bit damaged, especially especially at the beginning. The opening scene hmm. on the on the ship, you know, has yep. suffered some wear and tear, but that is inevitable with with something that's on spools of film. You know, the ends get damaged. Uh, but no, I think it looks it looks great. I think it's the same new transfer I think UCLA l- oversaw the transfer I think uh, Criterion and Master Cinema used the same one uh, hmm. I didn't I didn't notice any difference between the two and uh, uh, yeah no. It's, it's good it's one of the few titles that I actually have the steelbook for just because I think yeah, the, I the artwork on the steelbook is immeasurably better than that big yeah. uh, that big image of uh, Charles Lawton's fat face on the other one I'm not, <laughs> <laughs> not quite so much of a fan of it
0: yeah, I have the the regular edition and the the cover on that one it isn't all that, but I do really like the cover on the Blu-ray disc. So is the steelbook the same as the Blu-ray disc itself? I have it in front of me. This sort of cartoon uh, of uh, the panther woman, I think.
1: Yeah, I think it's the same image that's actually on the menu screen. Is that right? Okay. Uh yeah, that's what that's what they have on the discs.
0: Okay. Yeah.
2: No, definitely just on the, on the subject of kind of restoration
1: as well and i, I was having
2: this debate with someone the other day um I, I think there should be some sort of kind of like universal rules to how you can do a restoration and hmm. the amount of kind of digital manipulation and i was sort of saying you, you sh- if you're going to go down the route of kind of remixing and making surround sound things i think it should be like kind of a law that you have to have the original soundtrack option yeah, you can still do it up. Obviously, and remove the kind of the hisses and the bumps. But what are your kind of thoughts on that? I, it's, it seems to me it's because otherwise yeah, we, you you have this sort of situation with with what you have with Star Wars now. You know when it you know, obviously that gets be in people's bonnets big time. But I, I hate it when films like I mean like The Longest Day for example. The Blu-ray of that is absolutely a, a nightmare for what they've done on that restoration. Thankfully, um, Fox went back on pattern and did another release of it, um, which was a lot more kind of in keeping with what the filmmakers originally intended, but what are your kind of thoughts on that in general?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I think my thoughts kind of merge with my thoughts on the whole dual format thing. Is I like to have as many options open to me in a single package as possible, and so I'm I'm definitely all in for dual format releases and all that kind of thing. But yeah, when it comes to audio, I mean. If I'm brutally honest, at, at home, I, I have a nice TV, but I don't have any kind of surround sound set up. I just use right. the, you know, the, the speakers there just because uh, my living room's not very big. Apartments are right. pretty small here, and so you don't really need I them. Um, so, I, so that kind of aspect of it doesn't bother me, but I would always, yeah, far rather have, if, if, there's, if it was a mono soundtrack to begin with, uh, I will always select that, that one. The, you know the original yeah. version to listen to it, and so I, you know, I, I, yeah, when, whenever it's available, and le- even if it's completely damaged, you know, just put a disclaimer in and just say it sounds like shit, but here you go, uh, <laughs> you know, leave us, you know, leave us to make it make the decision. I mean, because it's they're they're more than happy to put a seven point one and a five point one and a DTS and all this, you know, and have like five different audio channels, um. So, yeah, give me give me that one as well. Give me the original, and then I'll I'll make my own mind up.
0: Yeah, we've spoken about this before where we I think we'd all prefer to have the original releases but if, as we talked about For All Mankind not long ago and they have included this DTS 5.1 sound it sounds immeasurably better but Mm. I would like the option to listen to the uh, 2.0 soundtrack as well and with regards to... Like restoration and guidelines, I think that is definitely something that needs to be done. Where you get a board of some sort that just like dictatorship, saying this you can do, this you can't do.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's I, I again, and I, I think studios as well completely sh- sh- shoot themselves in the foot. I mean, what really wound me up with *Pattern* as well is they had this horrible kind of picture noise reduced nightmare that came yeah. out in America. They went back and they remastered it. But then the version of Pattern they released in, on Blu-ray in the UK came out after the remastered one, but what was, what was the awful one that they originally released in America. And I sort of sat there and I, I, I openly admit I downloaded and made my own Blu-ray of the mm. remastered version because I thought, I'm not buying that piece of crap. You know what? It just seems like a kind of massive slap in the face. It's, but the amount of people who wouldn't buy the Blu-ray on the basis it was this crappy transfer it was was it was a very vocal kind of outrage about it and I sort of think studios are really kind of shooting themselves in the foot because let's be honest, a, a sixteen year old isn't gonna probably go out and buy a patent and think, Oh yeah, you yeah, know, I love Frank and J. Schaffner films and <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna buy all his films but kind of like bitter middle aged people like myself who <laughs> love that film and want it we that's not, that's the market for those. And if you're gonna release these kind of substandard kind of jazzed up Horrible-looking, high-def kind of nightmares. We're not going to buy them, and I think they just need to sort of get over that fact and start being a little bit more respectful.
1: Hmm. I agree. I mean, I think the only reason to release *Pattern* on Blu-ray at, at all uh, now is to release a kind of reference-level copy that you know hardened fans, harden cinephiles, or you know re- libraries and what have you are going to stock. You know, and that and it should hmm. be. It should be up to the highest possible standards. I mean, arguably everything should be always, but particularly with an old film, it, it makes no sense at all. I mean, I I wonder whether it was just enough to cock up internally, and the team that they put on the job were just shit, and they just you know mm-hmm. they just did a terrible job, uh, you know that, that the the higher ups didn't know about or only found out too late. You know, I would yeah. I would hate to think, and it might be true. I would hate to think that you know they peddle that kind of incompetence uh, willingly and knowingly you know, but you never know Well
2: sometimes, well I mean with Gladiator as well I mean I don't know if you ever picked up the first Blu-ray of that, and I watched it and I thought God this film looks atrocious and it came out, you know, 2001 or something like that and um, it, it just so happened that I I wrote to Universal and I got a letter back saying oh we're completely aware of this, send us your old copy and we'll make you another one that's better and oh, you wow. sent it in, and I, I and I rang them. I actually rang them up, and I, I kind of spoke to this woman who must have just been so bored of speaking to film nerds, just <laughs> crying out that they're copying. And sure enough, they sent me back the original, you know, a new version of it without this kind of horrible picture. And I was thinking, God, why didn't you just do that the first time round? What were you thinking when you sort of you know, scrubbed all the grain out of this film? It's so bizarre to me. I just don't. It's one of those things. I, it, it, You know how much of a nerd you are by how bothered you get by it, and I get really bothered by it. So it's a, <laughs>
0: Speaking about the extras on this one, there isn't a whole lot. There's a video interview with uh, Simon Callow, yes, uh, a lot biographer. He's an actor as well, isn't he? Yeah, oh, I've, yeah,
2: I've seen
1: Simon Callow in quite a few things. He's a brilliant yeah. actor. Yeah, I really
0: enjoy
1: him. He was in uh, four, four Weddings and a Funeral, I think, was probably his biggest. Oh ah, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And there's also a video interview with uh, the film historian Jonathan Rigby, as well as the booklet. But does this? I can't remember the extras on the Criterion edition. But does it differ? Uh, at large
1: or? uh yeah it's it's completely different um there's an audio commentary which is actually really good uh, a lot of fun to listen to uh there is hmm. a there's a round table kind of chat about all the makeup with john landis Rick Baker ah, yes. and Bob burns, which uh, is a little a little disorganized it's perhaps not as good as it could have been, but you know they touch on some great stuff uh then there's another. Uh, sort of sit down a bit like the the uh, John Dickey one, but uh, but with an American historian uh, who talks about it more specifically about coming out in in America and how that sort of affected people. But he is, that's interesting. He goes into all the um, sort of the Victorian history of the of the uh, novels that influenced Wells and all that kind of stuff, as well as going into the, talking about the film. And I think there might be one other thing. So it's it's pretty stacked actually the um, it's, the it's a short film. It's oh yeah, the Devo, the guys from Devo. Yeah. So Mark Mothersbaugh who does all uh, Wes Anderson's scores and stuff like that was is in this was in this pr- sort of avant-garde rock band in the late 70s called Devo and there's an interview with two two members of Devo about
0: hmm.
1: um how influential it was on them. And the
2: artwork on the Criterion one ah, is really gorgeous. good. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 kind of like it's got this half heart- it's got half a human hand and half an animal hand, and this kind of skull with things pointing in it and stuff. Yeah, it's a, <laughs> a really—it's uh, one of those ones where I, I wouldn't mind a copy of that on the wall, as
0: it were. Mm.
1: Yeah. Definitely. Um, I mean, so it's no, um, no, yeah. I was just going to so, say, so um, I think if you had, I, I hate to, I hate to sort of um, influence anyone's decision to go anywhere other than the uh, master cinema. But I think it, this is one of those justifiable times when you can own both. Because yes, it's yes, it's the same film, but all of there's a lot of great features on both, and they're all different.
2: I don't think the transfers are overly different either. Um, I've, I've, I did compare them both and did a little bit of a kind of what's better. And they're much of a muchness, really. So I guess it kind of comes down onto on, on where you live, or if you can get hold of a uh, a multi-region player. But um, yeah, I, I kind of echo what you're saying there, James. I think that if, if it's a film that you really, really love, um, I would probably plump for the Criterion, just on the basis of the extras alone. I think there's so much on there to dig into.
0: Hmm. so uh, wrapping up um, what's going on with your Society for Film podcast James
1: oh right yeah over there we are we're about to take another break it's been a bit of a stop start summer for us actually and we're doing a bit of a uh reformatting, should we say because uh, I'm about to leave town for five weeks so hmm. uh, we're going to regroup I think that will be the end of October and start again uh and uh you know but we we're, we're not going anywhere you know we are going we're, we're going to keep doing it but we're just going to change the format around a little bit try and make it a little bit more interactive and hopefully you know get a bit more uh make it a bit more interesting but um but yeah you know it's still going strong and uh, yep. en- enjoying doing it but uh but yeah no i'm about to go to uh austin texas next week for fantastic fest which is the 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 10th anniversary We've got Edgar Wright is on the jury. We've got um, we've actually got Richard Stanley coming to talk about his uh, documentary Lost Soul, and there will be a special screening of his uh, well the, the 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 Marlon Brando version, which should be quite amusing. <laughs> uh, a a tongue in cheek screening of that. Uh, <laughs> we've got Pete, we've got Kevin Smith's new film Tusk opening. We've got Jake Gyllenhaal's new film the Nightcrawler closing, and some good stuff in between. It should be a lot of fun. Uh, after that, I'm going to Sitges, um, which is the big sort of fantasy horror film festival in uh, Sitges, just outside Barcelona, which okay. should, be, right. should be lots of fun. I've never been before, but everybody says it's a great, great time. And um, it's my first ever time uh, on jury duty. I'm on the Asia and anime jury, which should be kind, ah. of, kind of fun. Cool. Yeah. So it's a cool Where can book. we
0: find your writing on that one? Or on
1: all this? Well, I'll be I'll be doing uh, a lot of coverage for Fantastic Fest on Twitch, so twitchfilm.com. I probably won't be covering much of the Sitges festival because I'm on a jury, so they yeah. don't really like you writing about it, I guess. Um <laughs> but I'm I'm going to try and work some kind of feature out of it afterwards and pedal that somewhere. See what I can do. Mm-hmm. Um but other than that, I think I've got to write a few reviews for Screen International while I'm at Fantastic Fest as well. of the premier, big premieres. But uh, other than that, yeah, I mean, anything and everything I do is, is on my Twitter channel. So, I mean, if you follow me on Twitter at Marshy00, then I'm, I'll be pretty in- incessantly going on about everything I'm doing.
0: Great.
2: I think everything you've just said then has made me hate you. So, <laughs> <laughs> cheers for that. Yes. Sir. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Cheers for that. Um, yeah. Good luck
1: yeah no, i appreciate it i'm i'm insanely excited and i've got like three days to go <laughs> yeah. it's gonna be brilliant
2: i always have an inability to feel um glad for people who do things better than i do <laughs> it's just like the most awful form of narcissism ever but it's like, as soon as you speak i was like oh, in <laughs> texas for all these things I've, I've never been to a film festival like abroad or anything like that. It's think i need to it's, it needs to be on my bucket list i think
1: <laughs> oh absolutely It's, it's a very worthwhile if expensive uh, thing to get into it's, uh, it's it's a lot of fun yeah
0: it's definitely going to happen one day yeah. Tom where can we find you um,
2: you can find me at 24framescast.blogspot.com you can follow me on twitter at 24framescast um, it's best I've got so many different social network things now click on the link page a uh, social network page or something on my blog and you can uh, connect with me how you want now i'm 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 so behind anything i don't know if it's google plus or facebook i should be i don't know but whatever uh, you can find me <laughs> on all of them there so.
0: yeah uh, and you can find us at moc underscore cast on twitter you can email us at mastersofcinemacast at com. And you can also find us on moccast.blogspot.com. And uh, speaking as we are now, we are also part of the Criterion Cast family. So you can also find us on their feed and on CriterionCast.com. So that's exciting news. So thank you for listening. And until next time, goodbye. Bye. Bye.